welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. This past Sunday at Bethesda Church, we observed communion. Therefore, Pastor Roy's message, entitled Contemplating the Cross, focuses on the role of Christ's death in salvation. Here is Pastor Roy from the pulpit of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today we're talking about the Lord's table, and the first part of our service today we want to focus on the cross. So I'm going to read some verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 and following, and then as we think about the cross, we're going to have a couple of songs about the cross that will help us think about the words that we're singing, and then we'll partake of the bread, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the blood sing a song about the blood, and then we will partake of the cup today. Beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. To really grasp the significance of what Paul is saying here, we need to go back and we need to consider his audience. Paul is addressing people in Corinth. Corinth was synonymous with immorality. Much like Las Vegas would be considered a gambler's paradise, or New Orleans would be a drinker's dream, Corinth was known for its immorality. In fact, the very word, and let's see if I can pronounce this word right, Corinthia zesthai meant to live like a Corinthian. It had become a part of the Greek language and it meant to live with drunken and immoral debauchery. There was a Greek writer who said, if there was ever a Corinthian that was shown upon the stage of a Greek play, that character was always shown drunk in the play. There was also a hill right, out, right at the edge of the city. It was called the Acropolis. Acropolis actually means, comes from two words, which means edge, uh, Akron, and polis, city. Acropolis. And it meant on the edge of the city there was a hill. And up on that hill, there was a temple called the Temple of Aphrodite. And on that temple, there were 1,000 priestesses 
who were considered to be sacred prostitutes who each night would come down into the city and ply their trade. It made me think about in our day, in 2014, when we watched the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. That in itself was a mini Corinth. Because what the International Olympic Committee did was they distributed 100,000 devices to prevent birth control to 2,800 athletes from 88 countries because they were going to practice much like Corinth. In fact, they said that the party spirit was incredible in the Olympic village. So much so that they talked about the intensive party atmosphere. And they said it was a hot spot to revel in the celebration because unlimited free alcohol is supplied at the village entertainment centers. And when I read about that, I couldn't help but think about Corinth, much like the Olympics, much like modern-day America. And so when we think about this, Paul bringing the message of the cross, no wonder it was foolishness to the Greeks. My question is, how do we determine someone's attitude toward the cross in any given community? I think the way we can tell the attitude of the cross in a community is by the way the people in the community behave. If the people in the community behave godly and with purity and in the right mind, holding high the word of God, then the cross will be powerful. It'll be powerful. If we don't, then we'll live lives of immorality and debauchery. There was a dramatist in the 6th and 5th century. He talked about the foolishness, much like Paul did in, Colossians, or I mean in 1 Corinthians 1.18. And when Paul talks about this idea of foolishness, it's the idea of being dull-witted. It is someone who lacks not only intellectually deficiency, but spiritual deficiency. There's no way for them to grasp the reality of the cross apart from the Spirit of God. It's impossible. And that's why Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 11, he says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There's a spiritual impairment to people understanding the message of the cross, simply grasping it with their human wisdom. It's impossible. It takes the Spirit of God working in a person to bring light to them. And so this writer in the 6th century near Athens, 
He said it implies not merely a lack of rational consideration, but the madness of the whole enterprise. He says the man is controlled by a power which confuses his understanding, causes him to do mad things, and hides the right path from him. Then Paul goes on to say in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Paul actually makes a reference back to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Here's what it says. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Paul was showing the people of Judah that if you belittle God's power, God is going to bring judgment on you. He goes on to say in verse 20, where is the wise man? Paul, or there, or Isaiah asked a similar question in Isaiah 19, 12, to mock the Egyptian wise men who could not understand the wisdom of God. He says in verse 20, where is the scholar? In other words, where are the rabbinical hair splitters? Where are the ones who want to debate over God's law but not put it into practice? Isaiah reprimanded the Assyrians for their pride and assuming they could gain a victory over God for Israel. Their computation was inept because they could not grasp the thoughts or the ways of God. He goes on to say, where is the philosopher of this age? Where are the sophistical reasoners? Here Paul is addressing people who are wise with words and their incredible boasting about how much they know. Paul's saying there's a failure of Jewish theology and there is a failure of Greek philosophy. Neither one will attain salvation. If we only study Jewish theology, we will fall short of God's idea of grace. If we study Greek philosophy, we will fall short. We will not attain salvation through simple human intellect and wisdom. We will fall short. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Paul is saying, in essence, that God had defeated the wisdom of the Egyptians and the Assyrians in the Old Testament. But now God was defeating the modern-day philosophers of this age through the idea of the foolishness of a man being crucified on a cross, shedding his blood that we could be forgiven of our sins. That made no sense to the high intellectual people at all. It was pure foolishness to them that someone could die a wicked death on a cruel cross, be defeated by the enemies as it were, and their idea was this. If that's the God of the universe who was defeated by the enemies and died a wicked death on a cruel cross, how could he possibly bring salvation when he couldn't even defeat his enemies? That was their thought. But just as human effort falls short in attaining salvation, so human wisdom falls short in bringing redemption for mankind. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now what is Paul telling us here? Paul is actually not talking about the, the act so much of preaching as he is the content and the substance of preaching. Paul is saying the substance of preaching is this, we preach Christ crucified. And that's where the world stumbles and says it is foolish. The idea of a crucified Christ could bring salvation and redemption to me and to you is foolishness. And yet that's the very thing that Paul talked about. When we get over to verse 23 of chapter 1, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In essence, the cross is the gospel. And this is the message we must proclaim, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And I would challenge you, when you listen to sermons, whether it's on the radio or television, Make sure that if you listen to that person very much, do you ever hear them talk about the gospel? Do they ever talk about the cross? Do they ever talk about Jesus' death on the cross? Do they ever talk about repentance for sin and salvation and the blood of Christ? You will find that it is missing in a lot of messages because it's offensive. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And yet Paul said he wanted to preach Christ crucified. And if you go over to chapter 2, Paul says in verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the message we have to proclaim, Christ and him crucified. He goes on to say in verse 22 that the Jews demand miraculous signs constantly, and we've seen this in the Gospel of John as we've studied this, they were constantly asking Jesus for a sign. Prove to us you're the Messiah. Prove to us you are who you said you are. And they would not accept the signs that Jesus had given. The Greeks were not satisfied either because the whole idea of a crucifixion was reserved for criminals. Remember, Jesus was crucified with two thieves. And so the idea is if Jesus dies like a criminal, Jesus therefore is just as cursed as the thieves were cursed. And how could his death and the curse of his death bring redemption to mankind? That was the thinking of the, the Gentile and the Greeks. And yet he did provide redemption for us. He says in verse 24, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The question is, what are we trusting in for salvation? Is it ourselves, or is it the finished work of Jesus' death on the cross? That and that alone provides redemption for us. 
That same night, Jesus took the cup, which represents his blood. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. He's talking to believers here because he says brothers, and he says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. He tells us here why we have confidence to enter into the presence of God. I cannot enter the presence of God. You cannot enter the presence of God simply by my own human effort, my good deeds, my good works, my giving to the poor, my church attendance, my baptism. None of that gains me entrance into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was only allowed, you remember, one day a year by the high priest, and he had to come and offer two sacrifices one for his own sin and one for the sins of the people before he could actually go through the inner curtain into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And he is t- Paul, or the writer is telling us here that the only confidence we have in entering the most holy place, going past the veil that was in the temple that separated the outer court from the inner court, the holy place from the Holy of Holies, that veil... When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Because if man was tearing it, they would tear it from the bottom to the top. Because God is in heaven, it was torn from the top to the bottom. And mankind, it says it opened to us a new and living way. So we have access into the presence of God, not based on who I am. Not based on my bank account or my intellectual prowess. It is solely based on the death of Jesus and his shedding of blood on the cross. I go into his presence with confidence. Why? Because his blood has covered my sin. It has covered your sin. And therefore we go on the merit of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus on the cross, gives me access into the Holy of Holies. And that's why the writer says, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, his body that was torn on the cross. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. As long as the old tabernacle was standing, and the old covenant was in effect, you and I did not have access into the Holy of Holies. We did not have access into the direct presence of God. Now you think about that, what that means. That means every time we pray, every time we petition God, every time we are burdened in our heart and we have something we want to talk to God about, I have access, direct access to the throne of God. I have direct access into the presence of God. What a wonderful thing. Every burden that I have, 
Every struggle that I have, every inadequacy that I have, every flaw that I have, I have access to the presence of God and his strength and his power. He told us in Hebrews 9.8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, as long as the old covenant was still into effect, the new covenant came into effect when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood. He opened for us a new and living way into the presence of Jesus. And that's why the Hebrew writer also says in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Not only do we have the privilege of bowing before God, being in his presence, but we have the privilege of coming with confidence. Confidence that he hears every cry of our heart. And I can tell you, after being married 20 years, I don't hear every cry of my wife's heart. (laughs) She doesn't hear every cry of my heart. There are times we tune one another out, not intentionally, but unintentionally. But God never tunes out his children. He never tunes us out. We have direct access into the throne of God. And I want to encourage you in a spirit of prayer to bring your petitions to that prayer-answering God that we have, that we fail to bring to him so often. Paul writes the Ephesians and he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. God has made us near him through the blood of Christ. That is the presence of God. He says in Hebrews 9, 12, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.